Assalamu alaikum everybody, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, welcome to the amazing conclusion, inshallah, of Surah Al-Anam. I'm so excited for our Tuesday session. Um, I, I just, again, I'm still actually so excited about Joe's crazy introduction. I just have to like shout out and I'm hoping and praying that it goes viral. We've posted it up onto YouTube. So if you missed it, definitely watch it. Um, and part of what I really love about it is that aside, I mean, we've gotten so many really brilliant comments about it and how touching it was and um, you know how it really hit home on in terms of the, the convert experience and, and even just if you're not a convert, just the experience that, that people have had in terms of the stages of conversion. I think it's probably the stages of trying to um, make sense of, of something that really doesn't make sense when it should, which is our, our faith and, and how you know we have an ethical compass for guiding us in life. Um, and it just sort of um, inspired me, I guess, to um, share a story about um, my own um, journey, I guess, from darkness to light, because there's so many different stories that people go through, definitely as a convert, um, <clears throat> in terms of why they want to ultimately decide, um, at least in my case, I wanted to have some kind of ethical compass. I believe that there should be an ethical compass and that there should be something that um, was like a guiding star for how I lived my life. And because the, the guiding stars that I was given as a child, whether it was, you know, um, seek after materialism or, um, you know, prestige or, um, you know, a good job or whatever it is, those things didn't really work out for me and didn't really make sense for me, as I've spoken about in, in previous introductions. And I remember, um, you know, when I was very, even before I became Muslim, like when I was starting to get interested um, in Islam, you know, I remember that I um, kind of hung with like a crazy group of friends in high school that I honestly didn't really like. Um, but because I didn't like myself and I was not very skilled at making friends, I just sort of ended up with the friends that I had and they were comfortable for me. They were my friends, I knew them, I grew up with them. Um, and when they would do things that were annoying and stupid, I oftentimes um, would, if the volume here is up. Um, I, I felt like I didn't have a choice because they were my friends and what was I gonna do? If I let my friends, if I left my friends, I would not have any more friends. Um, and I felt like, you know, oftentimes um, I didn't have very much in common with them and certainly when I got to college and, um, and business school and these are people that I continue to grow up with um, and, and share experiences with, um, it really started to irk me when I noticed that um, there was a, this growing chasm between what was important to me in terms of my own you know, um, choices and morality and, and you know, desire for a sense of a moral compass and ethical compass and their lack thereof. Um, and I remember there was, um, I had two very close girlfriends growing up, and I remember that one of them was about to get married, and so I went back to her wedding. She was marrying um, one of her um, college sweethearts, and I was absolutely mortified to find out um, when we got together for a bachelorette party um, that shortly before her wedding, she had gotten drunk one night and slept with someone else who was not her fiance, soon to be husband. And I was so disgusted by that, and I was even more disgusted by the fact that her friends, who she had you know, made in, in her college experience, we went to different colleges, that they didn't really have an issue with that. And I, I thought, this is really disgusting, and I cannot live with that. And in fact, after that, I ended our friendship. Um, and that was one of my two good friends. 
Um, and this was before I even became Muslim. This was just where I felt like, okay, this is not something that I can handle. Um, and then life went on. You know, I continued my journey. I eventually converted to Islam. Um, I eventually met Sheikh. Um, and, you know, the thing about darkness and light is when you are in darkness and you taste light and you feel light, you don't want to go back. You just want to um, move away and find your way to that light. And oftentimes what stops yourself too is your own um, level of comfort with what you've always had. Um, and a little bit of a, a sense that, you know, this is something you should never change because it's comfortable, you know? I mean, you, you live with your comforts, you grow up, um, and you, you don't want to let go of the things that are familiar to you, even if they're not right. But when I became Muslim, and then I, I you know, jumped ahead a year and met Sheikh, um, and I realized, okay, this is the path that I want, because obviously when you marry someone who is a Sheikh and committed to a certain path of light, um, I wanted to be all in, and that was important to me. And he was extremely instrumental in helping me, um, you know, find my, my path, redefine my life, rethink all of my choices and how I, I lived. And one of the very important decisions that I had to make was to let go of my friends that I had grown up with, who I was comfortable with, who I shared a history with, who if I let go of, I would basically mean I had no friends. And you know, this is kind of an unheard of thing, right? You don't kind of, and already, you know, I was struggling with just the path of conversion and the idea that everyone's already gonna think I'm crazy because, you know, why would you convert to Islam when you, you know, there's just nothing to, um, you must have like lost it, you know, gone off the deep end. So, you know, add on top of that, now you have cut off all your friends. So obviously you've joined a cult, which, you know, like shared that story with um, others here that there, my family did actually believe that when I converted to Islam, I was joining a cult. But that's another story. <laughs> we'll cover that in another, another episode. Um, but, you know, part of, of like choosing the path of light is coming to the realization that you have an, uh, the power to make choices that are extremely difficult, difficult but also very important for your trajectory forward. And, you know, letting go of my friends literally meant I had no friends. Like, I had no friends that could understand why I chose Islam, and I had not made friends that were Muslim. So there was a long period of time that I was really just friendless. But, alhamdulillah, I mean, I, I had Sheikh, I had God, I had my conviction that this is the path that I wanted, that I wanted to be all in. I wanted an ethical compass. I wanted to be clean. I wanted to get away from the darkness that I had grown up with. Because once I had tasted the light, again, I didn't want to go back and I wanted to do everything that I could to continue on that journey and make good choices. And you know, it, we, we know, I mean, from experience and also from the Holocaust um, that the people that you surround yourself with, your inner circle, and you know, these were like really important lessons that I learned very early on in, in my Muslim life, is that it's so critical who you surround yourself with because the people that are closest to you have an incredible impact on your psychology, on your morals, on your values, on you know your aspirations, 
Um, and so you, you know, and, and I, I even hear now, like when Mito's in school, you know, he's learning lessons about, you know, you want to surround your, if you want to be smart and, you know, find people who are even smarter than you, you know, and that actually applies to, I think, a spiritual path too, is that you want to surround yourself with really beautiful, good, moral people who share a belief in the importance of a, an ethical compass um, and who can hopefully help you to elevate. Um, and, and so that was one of the really difficult sacrifices um, at the time. But looking back, it was something that was absolutely necessary for my own growth and my own development. And I guess what went hand in hand with that lesson about choosing your friends and choosing who you allow into your inner circle is the idea that you actually can let go of comforts, um, even when you know you don't like them. You know, that you actually have the power to choose and you should take that power to choose um, whether it is to go after something that you believe will help you to develop and grow in a more beautiful way, um, and also to let go of those things that you, you know in your heart are not good for you, but sometimes takes courage um, to, to let go of. Um, a lot, I, I have a lot of um, people that I know that you know they, they are too scared to let go of things um, or to go against their comfort or to choose to go to cut against the grain. Um, and, and those are things that hold them back from moving forward in a very beautiful direction. And that, you know, I hope that the, some of the lessons that, that you know, we, we learn here is that, you know, it's this freedom of choice is something that is so blessed and beautiful and divine. It was something we were given. And, and I believe that, you know, if you don't use that choice wisely to surround yourself with the things that, you know, allow you to choose the path of light as opposed to the path of darkness, then you're really um, cheating yourself and not um, setting yourself up for success. I guess is, you know, maybe that's how people talk in terms of like, you know, secular world. But, you know, I think um, as we've learned here, there is no sort of neutral ground. You're either making choices that take you towards goodness and light or take you in the other direction, lack of, you know, goodness to the darkness. And so um, just to choose wisely and to recognize, you know, um, even when you think you don't have a choice, you always have a choice and that those choices um, can make all the difference um, in your future. And so, um, alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm so grateful that you know, that 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 knowledge or that awareness allowed me to arrive where I am today. Um, and so I just wanted to share that with others, people who are searching, um, who don't feel satisfied or happy, or maybe somewhere in that little voice inside of you that says, you know what, I could do better, but I'm scared to, um, do it, make a choice. Cause you know, um, as they say, um, you only live once, but I think this generation YOLO means something else. <laughs> like you only live once, so you know why not do everything stupid because you only have one. And I always tell Mito, you know YOLO, you know why not make the right choice because you only live your life once and you want to do the right thing. So anyway, uh, for whatever that's worth, I'm really really excited to hear the conclusion of Al Anam, and so inshallah, um, thank you for allowing us to be here and learn more, inshallah.
وعلى آله وأصحابه واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Okay, so we reach with Surah Al-An'am a quick recap as we said that Surah Al-An'am is revealed at the very end of the Meccan period and it is a constitutional surah, constitutional in the sense that it sets the foundations for the entire Islamic, not just faith, but what we refer to as a surat al-mustaqim, when we are constant, when we pray, and, Cite in the Fatha Hadina Sirat al Mustaqim. Well, what is the Sirat? The Sirat is an ethical path, it's an ethical commitment and an ethical project. And Surat al An'am does nothing less than engage you in a discourse that leaves you with all the basic and fundamental understandings that you need in order to internalize the Sirat al-Mustaqeem. And as we said, that Surat al-An'am begins with underscoring the relationship that the, the nature of the relationship that we have with the divine. And the basis of that relationship is alhamd. It's a foundation of gratitude. If you do not see everything that you have through the prism of alhamd, of gratitude, then you've hit a non-starter. It's a block that prevents you from going any further. And Allah underscoring from the very beginning that there is a critical difference between a dhulumat and a dhulumat, as we said, are layers of darkness, stages of darkness. Juxtaposed to nur, and as we said, that while light, nur is created, darkness is the absence of light. So if you are not committed to the path of the sirat, by definition, you gravitate, and you whether you fall into darkness in one swoop or you slowly slip into darkness, in all cases, it is the absence of light. 
And as we said, Surah Al-An'am then makes it clear that other than in addition to Alhamd is understanding that the relationship of Allah to creation is mercy. And that you are, when you are vested in the Surat al-Mustaqeem, by definition, you must be vested in a dynamic of receiving mercy and giving mercy. Your relationship to existence must be defined through how Allah defines God's relationship to existence. Mercy. And that's why, again, in Al-Fatha, we say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, underscoring a proper understanding of the Quran, not just the Surah Al-An'am, but in so much of the Quran, is that if you do not invest in tenderizing your heart and your intellect through understanding of mercy and what mercy is and how mercy manifests and how Allah's light is mercy and that it's like saying in illumination in the light of God the only possible outcome is to generate and reproduce mercy. So obviously, those who understand the relationship of their faith in terms of cruelty or hardship or anything other than ar-Rahma, again, they've hit in our in starter. And then as we noted that Allah then warns us that those who do not commit to the path of the light and do not understand that the giver of morality and the source of the ethical path is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That their path is eventual destruction whether they implode from the inside, whether, but it is the lack of a moral and ethical foundation inevitably leads human beings to disintegration. And as we said, then Allah warns clearly in Surah Al-An'am of the human tendency, although to say we believe, but to associate partners with Allah in their actual psychological attitudes towards existence. And associating partners with Allah, as we said, is anything that you attribute an authoritative status to that is effectively semi-divine, whether that is class, social status, power, nationality, wealth, 
and so on. And then Surah Al-An'am takes us to this critical point that starts around Ayah 38 of alerting us or underscoring that this existence has a natural order and a natural law. And that the reference to umam amthalukum, that the reference to that everything in creation is an umam. And as we said, that it is not simply saying that they have communities but saying that they have a naturally coded order that Allah has put into existence. From there, then Surah Al-An'am starts elucidating that natural law, that ethical code that emanates from the divine, but that is if you're with it, if you understand it, then you're heading towards your, the light. If you fail to understand it, then you gravitate towards the darkness. And one of the most critical lessons of Surah Al-An'am, which starts around verse 47, is that Allah allows the destruction of Allah allows the destruction of the unjust. And as we said that from this, Muslim scholars understood from the, from the beginning of Islam that Allah will support a just society over, even if that just society is not Muslim, even if the just society are mushriks, are kuffar, even if they're atheists, Allah will support a just society over an unjust Muslim society. And in fact, from that principle itself, Islamic jurisprudence, as the quote that we read last time, deduced the idea that the rights of human beings take prominence over the rights of God. That it is the role of society, the job of society, to vindicate the rights of human beings before vindicating the rights of God. And if there is a clash between the rights of human beings and the rights of God, then the rights of human being take priority. This is anchored in the early Muslim society. It's like saying, which we know that it comes after a message of Surat Hud and Surat Yunus and Surat Yusuf. All these suwar leading up to Surat Al-An'am underscored that justice is both universal and natural. And it is 
universally desired and naturally recognized. And as we have said in the past, if you have two dogs and you give one dog a treat, the other dog immediately looks at you as if even a dog is encoded with the natural, natural intuitive sense of where is my treat. If you, give this, if you give this dog a treat, it's unfair if you don't give me one. A child may not know a lot of things, but a child knows when you discriminate between two children. You favor one or you give one and you deny the other intuitively. They know that this is injustice. Justice and the desire for justice, if you paid attention to the messages leading up to Surat Al-An'am and underscored Surat Al-An'am, is that to say a Muslim society that is true to Islam, but for this Muslim society to be anchored in injustice or to live or coexist with injustice, by definition, they lack God's support. It is impossible for God to support the unjust party over the just party. And then after establishing that principle, as we discussed, then Surat Al-An'am starts revealing the various ethical precepts within that natural system of morality. So the first lesson we, we learn after the point about justice is that political expedience, and we know we've been exposed to this before in the Quran, but again Surah Al-An'am returns to it and tells the Prophet that political expedience can never be an excuse for the commission of injustice for breaking the natural law. So that you cannot expel the poor or you cannot distance the poor or you did, cannot distance those who are of a lower class, or you cannot distance those who are slaves. And slaves in, in, in that time, to, to say that you can't even distance slaves to talk to people, was absolutely radical. I mean, even the Prophet when he prohibited Muslims from referring to slaves as slaves, and said, refer to them as my brothers, or my, my brothers or my sisters. It, it's absolutely radical. It's absolutely radical because it is against all the social norms. But Islam underscored that the idea of sort of political expedience as a justification for success is a non-starter. Then, we, as we said, then move to the next ethical lesson. The very nature of your relationship as Muslims with the other 
must be founded on Assalamu Alaikum. And Assalamu Alaikum is the to make safe. It is not just you wishing someone peace, but when you say Assalamu Alaikum, you are saying, you are safe with me. You are safe in this space. I am, as a Muslim, I'm not here to threaten you. I'm not here to demoralize you. I'm not here to belittle you. All of these would be inconsistent with Assalamu Alaikum. Anyone that studies the Sunnah of the Prophet sees very clearly, time and time again, how the Prophet translated the philosophy of Assalamu Alaikum. It is your dignity, your honor your persona, your personality is respected and safe. So to say assalamu alaikum and then degrade a human being, it, it, it's, it absolutely makes no sense. It, it means that you have no idea what the philosophy of assalamu alaikum is. And then comes a warning which Surah Al-An'am will come back to towards the end. And this is in verse 65, when Allah warns that if you fail to take these ethical precepts, Justice, rejection of political expedience, in other words, pragmatism, the type of pragmatism that puts ethics to the side. If you fail to understand the philosophy of social interaction on the basis of assalamu alaikum, the result could be truly horrific. And that is for Allah to lift the divine barakah, to, to Allah to leave you to your own fate. And what results from that is يلبسكم شيعا ويذيق بعضكم بأس بعض انظر كيف نصرف الآيات لعلهم يفقهون The result of that is inner disintegration lack of social safety lack of social cohesion to the point that you as human beings turn one against the other and become like when you put animals in a cage, they start fighting. The, the, the anxiety, the stress itself, the 
disintegration in the sense of, of being produces cruelty, produces the opposite of Rahman, and leads to the type of social anxiety, social fear, that results in tyranny and social violence and infighting. It is like Allah saying, and it's not just like Allah saying, it is Allah saying. It's not just Shia, it doesn't just mean civil war. But even high crime rates, when you find societies where, for instance, a woman can't walk safely in the street, where you find societies, people can't be safe, travel safely. When you find societies plagued by crime and violence, that's, that's exactly what the, what the area is talking about. The loss of these basic natural ethics Now, Nusarrifun Ayat, which I want to pause at for just um, a second. Nusarrifun Ayat is that, is as if Allah is saying, look at how we educate you through material examples of existence. It's like an intellectual challenge. Allah saying, if you use your intellect and you study what I'm telling you, and you study the impact of these things that I'm telling you about, and what happens when these things that I'm telling you about fail? You will see the demonstrative proof of what you've been, you are told. It's, it's, if you're an intelligent human being, you cannot help but be transformed by this. Because if Allah is telling you, listen, if you become pragmatists where basically it's a dog-eat-dog world, where it's just survival of the fittest, where it's political expedience, where I get ahead and that's what matters, if you lose sight of justice, if you lose sight of mercy, if you lose sight of assalamu alaikum, the philosophy of assalamu alaikum, what you will end up creating is societies of violence and societies of suffering, and it will be your fault, not Allah's fault. Because as we will see, 
ultimately human beings suffer societies of violence because of their own deeds and they blame Allah for it. Allah, why are we living this way? Why aren't you intervening to prevent the suffering? You've rejected the light. You've told Allah, we don't need you. And then, as exactly Surah Al-An'am warned us, when you, things get extremely bad, you start returning the gaze to Allah. But the minute Allah alleviates your suffering, even to any degree, again you turn away from Allah. It's, Surah Al-An'am is a, a, a remarkable unpacking of social psychology, individual psychology, social morality, truly a constitutional surah in every sense of the world. Okay. And notice this لكل نبأ مستقر وسوف تعلمون It is remarkable, profoundly eloquent. لكل نبأ مستقر وسوف تعلمون It's like saying, forget the translations. But what, it, is it, what it's saying is, there are facts to existence. You will come to know. You will come to know either through the suffering of experience, you will suffer the results of your ignorance, or you will come to know in the hereafter. But you will come to know. They are, these facts are encoded in the laws of creation. And that's why I keep using the expression natural law. Because it, 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 you can't escape it. You can't create a society that will sprout happiness but forget about mercy. You can't create a society that will be blessed and, and wonderful but forget about justice. You cannot go against the philosophy of Assalamu Alaikum and somehow avoid creating social diseases that will result in anxiety and restlessness and uprootedness. Okay. Then the transition from there in Surah Al-An'am to a theme that many Muslims do not pay attention to, unfortunately. And that's those who يَخُودُونَ وَذَرِ الَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا دِينَهُمْ لَعِبًا وَلَهْوًا وَغَرَّتْهُمُ الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا 
So remarkably, it's as if Allah is anticipating our psychology exactly and alerting us to something that is a very serious social phenomenon. I will take the second part first. The second part are those who say we belong to religion. We are people of faith. But they learn nothing from this faith except la'ib wa meaning absolute nonsense. Muslims normally understand la'ib wa is that you are having fun. No, la'ib wa is that you don't take it seriously. You could be a Muslim, you could pray your five prayers, you could fast Ramadan, but still take religion as la'ib wa If it doesn't produce transformations in your moral code, in your way of life, if it doesn't teach you what mercy is, what justice is, what assalamu alaikum is, then you are taking your religion as la'ib walahu. It's la'ib walahu is an idiomatic expression as basically it's something there, but it's not serious. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's something that caters to your ego, but ultimately serves no moral purpose. Anything that caters to your ego, even if it's religiosity. So if you, you just pray because you learn to pray, your parents taught you to pray, and it's your habit, you just pray. Or if you fast Ramadan because, you know, that's what you've always done, and there's a certain culture during Ramadan, and there's, you know, certain events in Ramadan, and this is what you do. But you ultimately, there is no ethical purpose. It is, you're not engaged with the morality of light, of nur. You are taking your religion as la'ib Then let's take the first part. The instruction to the Prophet and of course to other Muslims is that when you find those who who are يَخُوضُونَ فِي آيَاتِنَا يَخُوضُونَ فِي آيَاتِنَا Those who are pontificating upon the Qur'an, meaning speaking without knowledge and without understanding, or mocking the Qur'an, that would also qualify. Or, but could also include that you are saying, well, this means this, this means that, but you really have no understanding of anything. It's not out of any knowledge. Moreover, could also be those who are pontificating, intellectually regurgitating, just production, about creation itself. 
So in other words, it's Allah, it's sort of what Greece was talking about. Allah is telling you, learn to speak seriously and morally. Nonsense talk has its place when it's for entertainment. Muslim scholars discuss this at length. It's not, Allah's not saying don't have fun. But when you pontificate upon creation, upon the purpose of creation, upon things that Allah has elucidated, like the place of justice, or the place of mercy, or the places of salam, of peace, and what you are gurgitating is nothing more than intellectual pontifications or theorizing. The instruction is quite remarkable. Is it's like saying, save yourself. Learn to keep your own intellect and your own conscience clear. Now, this, of course, until they, they, they change the topic, which is fascinating because, again, at the time that Surah Al-An'am is revealed, you would expect that if it's talking about the kuffar, that it would tell Muslims, you know, these people are persecuting you, you know, say awful things about them. But instead it comes and it says, learn to be discerning. Whether you are dealing with Muslims or non-Muslims. And especially what I find very fascinating is the attitude towards the, 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 the oppressors. Those people who are persecuting you, if they're producing toxic speech, then abstain. But it doesn't tell them refrain from talking to them. It is as if, and that's for a clear reason, is that you must continue trying, although you're, you're persecuted, you must continue trying to communicate to them the ethical message, the moral message of Islam. And, of course, there are reports about if, the sh if shaitan causes you to forget and you do end up sitting in a conversation that, so once you, you remember, then say, and refrain from doing so. There are reports about why the, the, the occasion of, for revelation as bab nuzul, but not reliable. So, again, it, it's one of the events that happen in Medina that are projected back to an, a Meccan verse. But it's fascinating that it, uh, it, Allah, as if there is the full expectation that as human beings, we will forget and we will be sucked into conversations that are not based on an ethical purpose or any real knowledge. There are nothing but intellectual pontifications. 
but learn to understand that this is from shaitan. Learn to understand that if you are talking without basing your system of knowledge, your epistemology is the fancy word, your system of knowledge on a divinely based moral code as Allah, as the teacher of your morality, and you end up engaging in, 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 in talk that reflects that basically your morality comes from whatever, your social mores, your habits, your what makes sense to you, no real knowledge. This, the type of ethic reflected in Ayah 68 is precisely how the Quran ignited the love of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge in Muslims. Because one of the big mysteries that Orientalists struggle with all the time is how did an illiterate people suddenly become not just literate, but become, became obsessed with the pursuit of knowledge? I can't tell you how many times when you book, when you read books on Fadl and the, the, the on knowledge, Islam, they will cite this precise ayah and ayahs like this in saying that Allah taught us that speech is a responsibility and speaking without knowledge is a moral flaw and it's a moral flaw that is shaitani. وَذَكِّرْ بِهِ أَن تُبْسَلَ نَفْسٌ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ لَيْسَ لَهَا مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ وَلِيٌّ وَلَا شَفِيعٌ وَإِن تَعْدِلْ كُلَّ عَدْلٍ لَا يُؤْخَذُ مِنْهَا أُولَئِكَ الَّذِينَ أُبْسِلُوا بِمَا كَسَبُوا لَهُمْ شَرَابٌ مِنْ حَمِيمٍ وَعَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْفُرُونَ the translation on 70. This is verse 70. I don't like the translation, so I'm, I'm just going to... Tupsan nafsun bima kasabat that it's, as I said, this is 70. Remind, educate, because there is a very real risk. And the risk is that Allah will allow people to be ruined by what they deserve. And وَإِن تَعْدِلَ كُلَّ عَدْلٍ لَا يُؤْخَذُ مِنْهَا It reaches the point of ruin where even if it attempts, and ta'adil means fida or to present, um, to attempt to, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, fida is ransom. 
But it's not, Allah could have simply said ransom, but ta'adila kulla adlin means it attempts at this point to ransom itself from ruin by correcting or introducing corrective measures. So it's like you realize, oh my God, everything in my society, everything in my family, everything in my life is messed up. I am very far away from Allah. And at this point, if you say, to, if you say Allah, forgive me because I had a very devout grandmother, that's ta'adil If you say, if you go to Allah and say, Allah, please intervene and save my children from drugs or alcohol, whatever, that's ta'adil if you say, Allah, help me because blah, blah. So in other words, the, the, when you reach that point of realizing that a point where of despair and you attempt to correct through either appeal or offers of tawbah, offers of the, the, of repentance or offers of, you know, Allah, if this happens, I will fast. If this happens, I will go to Hajj. If the, that's, that's all ta'adul So it's an amazing expression because in, in just a few words, Allah covered a whole array of psychological reactions that human beings offer so if you are on a, in a plane and the plane is about to crash and you say, Allah, save my life. If you save my life, I will feed 60 orphans. That's ta'adil kullad. If you're on a ship that's about to drown and you say, Allah, save me and what? That's ta'adil kullad. Including if you're in the hereafter and you're about to go to hellfire and say, Allah, don't send me to hellfire and, you know, whatever you, you start mentioning as your bargaining chips, that's all covered by that expression. Okay. And then the emphasis again, that remember human beings that this ruin is by what you've earned. Okay. Then 70, Sorry, uh, uh, 71. This is another image in the in twice used in the Quran that those who reach the point of the type of shirk that we talked about, 
of it's not that they believe there are other gods than God, but they believe that the source of morality and ethics and their moral compass is not anchored in God, it's anchored in whatever. That they reach a point with this amazing and alarming Quranic vision a person who becomes without a compass, moral compass, on earth, lost because that person lives among demonic influences. So it's like you, it's like saying if you are not with Allah, you are at least at risk of living in the company of the demonic of demons and these demons pull you in whichever direction you're without anchor you suffer constant anxiety you suffer constant worry you suffer you constant you're restless constantly you have no purpose you have no cause you're entire system of positive reinforcement is in a profession, a career, a tribe, a family. But once that falls, you're lost, demonically lost. But Allah then poses those Although the person is lost, there are what the, the, the divine side, which Allah refers to as people on the right path calling upon this person. But then that begs the question, well, why is this person unable to respond? Unable to respond? The demonic path is like a gravitational pull. If the gravity takes hold of you, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to break that gravitational pull. And so you, even though you might have the possibility of those in your life who call you to the right path, but you're lost because you sucked into the gravitational pull of the demonic. It's a very alarming image. Now, of course, the Sufi tradition writes a great deal about this verse. 
but um, uh, it will take us. I mean, the, okay. وَنَأْقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ وَالتَّقُوهُ وَهُوَ الَّذِي إِلَيْهِ تُحْشَرُونَ هُوَ الَّذِي خَلْقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ بِالْحَقِّ وَيَوْمَ يَقُولُ كُنْ فَيَكُونُ قَوْلُهُ الْحَقِّ وَلَهُ الْمُلْكُ يَوْمَ يُنْفَخُ فِي الصُّورِ عَالِمُ الْغَيْبِ وَالشَّهَادَةِ هُوَ الْحَكِيمُ الْخَبِيرُ This is 72 and 73. Let's see how the translation is. Um, so, prayer, to perform prayer, and translation of the study Quran is rever in reverence God. It is unto God that you, you shall be gathered. God is who created the heavens and earth in truth and on the day that God says be and it is. God's word is the truth and sovereignty is God's on the day when the trumpet is blown, nor of the unseen and the seen. He is the wise, the aware. This is the study Quran. The critical thing here, this is the right before we will enter, we will, the Quran, Surah Al-An'am will transition to the story of Ibrahim, salam. It reminds us again of Salah wa Taquh, of constantly being in reverence of Allah, that Allah is constantly before our gaze. Okay, that's clear. What deserves pause here is قوله الحق Now, normally this is translated as God's word is the truth. But Throughout Surah Al-An'am, and throughout, in fact, many parts of the Qur'an, Allah, Qawlul Haqq, is a reminder, again, of the truth of this, the natural laws, the ethical course that Surah Al-An'am calls us to. It, it is say, like saying, believe Allah when Allah tells you that this is the invariable truth. You will be tempted to explore things in many different ways, but this is the anchor that you need. And as we will see, the reason this is the transition before the narrative about the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, is because of this point about naturalism that I keep referring to. Okay, 
So Surah Al-An'am at this point transitions to the Prophet Ibrahim as he is speaking to his father Azar. In the in the books in the books of Tafsir, you find a lot of writing about whether Azar was that's the Prophet Ibrahim's father's real name, whether Azar was. I mean, this stuff is it's not useful, um, and there's no reason to go into it. The, anyway, because it's not material to the purpose of the narrative. As we said, the Qasas of Qur'ani, all Qur'anic narratives have a moral reason. God, unlike the Bible, the Qur'an doesn't just relate history for the sake of history. The narrative in Surah Al-An'am is that Ibrahim tells his father, and if you recall that there are various stories about the Prophet Ibrahim, many of them quite apocryphal. For instance, that he was born at the time of a ruler called Nimrod, and that Nimrod were killing, uh, was told that there will, there will be a, a prophet, so he killed all the children, and then Ibrahim was taken to a cave and was raised in a cave by angels. All of that is apocryphal. All of that has no basis. But Azar was hoping that Ibrahim was going to be a man of, to, who will inherit his father's social status in, the, in uh, the society in which the Prophet Ibrahim was born. And the Prophet Ibrahim starts with what becomes a very famous Quranic narrative about the process of deducing the existence of God. So Ibrahim expresses doubt to his father about what they worship, their system of deities and system of idols. And notice 75, Nuriya Ibrahim Malakuta Samawati Wal Ard Waliyakuna Minal Mukhanin. This verse seventy-five I will come back to but let's just read the translation for now. Thus we show Ibrahim Abraham the domin the dominion of heavens and earth that he might be among those possessing certainty. Okay. So what then follows is that the Prophet Ibrahim, as the, the famous narrative, is that he says, okay, where is God and what is God? And he's, as the narrative is that he sees the moon and then the moon goes away and says, well, you know, this can't be God, sees the sun and then the sun goes away and says, well, this can't be God. And, and then the, the famous statement, statement uh, where the Prophet Ibrahim says, "Inni wajhatu wajhi billadhi fatr al-samawati wal-ard hanifa wa ma ana min al-mushrikin." It says that I I've I've turned my my gaze towards the one and only Lord of the heavens and the earth. So 
And in between this is in 77 where the Prophet Ibrahim says, that if God doesn't guide me, surely I will go astray. Okay, so what's so important about this? Notice that there is the deductive part. Is it the moon? Is it the sun? Lord, if you don't guide me towards the truth, I will go astray. And then Ibrahim says, I'm now committed to the, the, to the knowledge of my Lord. But 75 says, and this is the way that we show Ibrahim the dominion of the heavens and earth so that Ibrahim will be, will have certainty. So in the books of tradition or traditional tafasir, they talk about this where there are many reports that say that the that Allah revealed to the Prophet Ibrahim the heavens sort of opened the knowledge of the heavens and the reality of earthly life and so that this entire discourse about the sun, the moon and eventual truth is simply Ibrahim, it's like Ibrahim playing to the, to the ignorances of his people. So in other words, it was a theatrical performance that Ibrahim attained knowledge of divinity because God showed Ibrahim the dominion <coughs> of the heavens and earth. And so when Ibrahim asks these questions, he's not really asking them, he's asking them to play to the ignorances of his people. That's the traditional approach. And that you find this in a lot of book of Tafasir. The Sufi approach, which takes this entire discourse as, um, what is the part that I'm looking for? Um, yeah, that this entire discourse uh, as metaphorical. So typically in the, in the Sufi approach, they'll talk about that the, when um, the star in this, when Ibrahim sees the, the star, that the star represents the intellect, um, which at the knowledge of God through Burhan, through demonstrative proof, which the intellect needs. But then the next stage beyond that is 
the sun which represents the brilliant light of Gnosis, the, the brilliant light of absolute illumination. That you go from demonstrative proof to absolute certitude through illumination. I mean, the, there's a lot to be said for the Sufi approach. Um, the traditional approach about the, the hadith, about God showing the Prophet Ibrahim the dominions of the heavens and the earth and so on, again, we have a serious problem with the authenticity of many of these hadiths. Nearly all of them, actually. I don't know one of them that is, is beyond authentication problems. Where this discourse leaves its richest impact, in my opinion, is, and this is particularly among tafsir like Razi or Zamakhshari or the, the more, either Zamakhshari who was a Mu'tazili or someone like Razi who was not a Mu'tazili but had a very heavy influences on intellect, is the ability of the intellect to realize Normally, they talk the ability of the intellect to, to realize Allah's existence and Allah's oneness naturally. And that if one goes through that path, Allah aids the intellect that is searching for the divine through the dominion that and that, that's the reason for Allah saying we showed Ibrahim or and such we show Ibrahim the dominion of the heavens and the earth is that if you commit yourself to searching for the truth Allah will aid you towards the path in my view yes I agree with Al-Razi and I agree with Zamakhshari that this is what it's talking about but there is an, a further meaning that I think is obvious. And it's a meaning that has to do with the rest of Surah Al-An'am. And that is the evident truth of the natural laws of morality that Surah Al-An'am engages us in. That when, it, when the Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, rebels, and we know from the Quran itself that he rebels not just against the belief system of the society in which the, he lived, but against the morality of that society. It is a society that is replete with what we today call classism, with practices such as human sacrifice, with deep injustices, including the privileged uh, uh, class of um, servants of the shrine 
who are, and as the rest of Surah Al-Alam will in fact bolster that as we will see. So Ibrahim's rebellion is not just that you worship the wrong God, but is that you are an un unjust people. And when Ibrahim salam deducing about what is right and wrong, yes, Allah aids you to understand Allah's oneness, but Allah also aids you to understand the natural truth that the rest of Surah Al-An'am will speak about, especially when we get to the laws that the Meccans follow. So before Surah Al-An'am gets us to the point where it starts criticizing the way the Meccans approach law, it has this critical transition portion, which the Prophet Ibrahim searches for the nature of truth. And he doesn't find truth in physical realities, not in material things, the sun, the moon, stars, but in the ultimate basis for morality itself. God. It's like you're not going to understand Ar-Rahman. You're not going to understand Al-Muqsid. You're not going to understand you're not going to understand mercy or justice or peace if your understanding of truth comes physically, purely, from a commitment to materialism. Morality is anchored in the divine. In Qadi Abdul Jabbar's Mughni, who is a Mu'tazili, and Al-Mughni is one of the most, it's the book that influenced Thomas Aquinas when he wrote his famous Summa. And as some of you might know, Thomas Aquinas' Summa is the birth of natural law in the West. And the birth of natural law, which is always cited as the roots for human rights and Western civilization and everything. But Thomas Aquinas cites to Ibn Rushd, to Ibn Sina, and to Qadi Abdul-Jabbar in his Summa. He was one of the few Christian intellectuals that was honest in citing to Muslim sources. <clears throat> Qadi Abdul-Jabbar's Mughni, compared to the Summa, in my not so humble opinion, it is 10 times as brilliant. I mean, the West is extreme. There are tons of books written about Thomas Aquinas and his Suman and, and the influence of Thomas Aquinas. Very little in the Muslim tradition written about Al-Mughni and Qadi Abdul-Jabbar, 
who is, as an intellect is ten times Thomas Aquinas. It is not an exaggeration to say that this interaction from verse 75 to 79 is the heart and core of what becomes the ten volumes of philosophical delight that Qadi Abdul Jabbar produces on the nature of morality and ethics. It tells you just as a demonstration of how much we regressed as a people. I mean, Qadi Abdul Jabbar wrote his work a thousand years ago. There isn't a single Muslim intellectual living today or in the past 200 years that I can think of as even coming close to matching what someone like Qadi Abdul Jabbar wrote. And his discourse on this, on these ayat, and how they lead us to understanding the nature of morality and the nature of ethics. Notice this remarkable Quranic illusion that is an indication that's truly. This is verse eighty, where. Prophet Ibrahim is now debating with his people. So he say, وَحَاجَهُ قَوْمُ قَالَ أَتَحُجُّونِ فِي اللَّهِ وَقَدْ هَدَامِ وَلَا أَخَافُ مَا تُشْرِكُونَ بِهِ إِلَّا أَيَّ شَاءَ رَبِّي شَيْئًا وَسَعَ رَبِّي كُلَّ شَيْءٍ عِلْمًا أَفَلَا تَتَذَكَّرُونَ وَكَيْفَ أَخَافُ مَا أَشْرَكْتُمْ وَلَا تَخَافُونَ أَنَّكُمْ أَشْرَكْتُمْ بِاللَّهِ ما لم ينزل به عليكم سلطانا فأي الفريقين أحق بالأمن إن كنتم تعلمون. It's amazing because what he is saying to them, you're debating with me, but you're telling me, you're warning me about the consequences of thinking through right and wrong and realizing that Allah is the moral compass. And it is not your deities, it is not all the values, the value system that you ascribe to. And then says, which of the two of us is more entitled is entitled to feel security and safety. It's, it's a remarkable wedding of belief in Allah with the ethical results of if you believe in Allah, you believe in the ethical teachings of Allah. And the ethical teachings of Allah would generate a sense, what is amn? Amn is safety, tranquility, repose. So 
that's precisely in Ibn Arabi's Futuhat, one of his favorite prayers is Whatever value system you have, you, you search for, if it's not anchored in God, ultimately I know that what God educates me, what God teaches me, anchors in what is justice, what is peace, what is right, what's moral. So it's like saying which way of, if I would translate in our modern language, so it doesn't sound medieval. Let's say, is your materialistic value system, is your value system based on pragmatism and materialism and atheism? Is your value system based on a natural selection or a, co or a process of evolution or evolutionary ethics? What would lead to tranquility and safety and goodness or the ethical system or the ethical code that comes from God that is based on firm principles of justice and mercy and peace. That is why it is when Muslims divorce their religion from the ethics of that religion, it became a, an amalgamation of rituals without meaning. But it is, it is a, a, a firm question that you can pose to Muslims at any time. Is your secular ideology that is based on whatever notions of tolerance you have deduced or whatever ideas of social contract you think is the basis of organizing society is your idea of civic society and civil society that is based on an, an, a, a theoretical hypothetical contract civic contract that is done somewhere and is your theory of ethics and justice that is based on various philosophical hypotheticals, is that superior or the ethical system that we bring based on immorality founded in God? Now, the, the disaster, the disaster for modern Muslims is that if you come to any the vast majority of Muslims today, and you say, which is the superior path? For a Muslim to stand there and to say, oh, you know, the non-Muslims in America have a superior way of life. 
the non-Muslims in England has a superior way of life. The non-Muslims in France have a superior way of life. This, it is, it, it is giving the lie to Surah Al-An'am, to this specific expression, If Muslims fail to translate that into a truth, a social, concrete, material truth, That's that's entire moral failure right there. Notice, and that is precisely why telling you Surah Al-An'am is just an endless ocean. That is precisely why Alladina Amanu right after Ayul Fariqaini Hakulam Alladina Amanu. وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمٍ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمُ الْمُهْتَدُونَ Those who believe, but they did not mix with their claim of Iman injustice. Those are the ones Look, those are the ones who are entitled to safety and security and tranquility. Could God have made it more clear? I mean, it, it's, when you understand the Quran, it blows your mind what Muslims have done with this, with, the way they truly have neglected this book entirely. And then Allah follows it immediately with those who believe. But if you believe and you live, your life is full of injustice as it is in Muslim country after Muslim country. You're not entitled to them. And then the entire discourse of the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, has become meaningless. And the entire juxtaposing between the moral awareness of the Prophet Ibrahim as opposed to the moral bankruptness of Azar, his father, and his people becomes meaningless. It's completely, you rob the Quran of, of, entire, of its entire power. No. Okay. Then, after we are presented with the narrative of the Prophet Ibrahim, Allah, from verse 84 to verse 90, reminds us that the ethical code, and this was a reminder to the Prophet and his, belief, and his followers, which again, to me, when this is the way you're talking to people who are oppressed and persecuted, the author is just cannot be human. You come in and you tell them, okay, it's look, it goes back to the Prophet Ibrahim, and it is the same ethical message, prophet after prophet, and 
So, if, as you notice, it says, and after Rabbi Wahabna Lahu Ishaq wa Yaqub wa Kullan Hadayna wa Nuhan Hadayna min Qabl wa Min Zuriyatihi Dawood wa Sulaiman wa Ayyub wa Yusuf wa Musa wa Harun wa Kathalik Najd al-Muhsaleen. It is a line of prophets, all with the same basic message. It could even become uh, like a, a, a label. I, I mean, like a, like a, 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 a what do you call it? A, 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 like a phrase. Ayul fariqayni haqqub al-am. It could become a whole idea. You know, you could go around carrying signs. Ayul fariqayni haqqub al-am. But those who have iman and the their iman leads to zulm, to injustice, they're not entitled to end. And it is the same message, prophet after prophet after prophet. And this reminder then culminates in going back to the Prophet Muhammad and saying, and remember that I ask you no compensation. This, is, this message, although you are persecuting my followers, although you've made my life impossible, this is not about any form of of benefit to me, but it is dhikra lil'alameen, a message to humanity at large. Now, remarkable, I mean, you persecuted people and you're telling them, I am sending a message to humanity at large. There's a, a, a report that I read, and unfortunately I couldn't remember where I read it, that the Meccans jeered and laughed that the Prophet keeps telling them, Dhikra lil'alameen. You're here in Mecca and we are about to kill you. Because remember, there's going to be a plot where they, they're all going to agree to assassinate the Prophet. And you're telling us, you're sending a message to humanity at large? You, you know, you sound crazy to us. Okay. Then Surah Al-An'am takes us to the Prophet Musa Why? Because Allah knew that Muslims were going to migrate to Medina before they knew. And they're going to confront the Jewish population in Medina. And it reminds them that the book sent to Moses Nuran wa huda. It is light and guidance. But the problem, and this is now, it, it, it's going to become addressed to <laughs> Jewish tribes when Muslims reached Medina. When it was revealed, they didn't know why this was significant. But it's telling them, Nuran wa huda linnas, taj'alunahu qaratis, tubdunaha wa tukhfuna kathira. That it was a book of guidance, but you, speaking to the Jews that Muslims will encounter, you've made it mere words on paper. You forgot the ethical message behind what Allah sent to Moses. And you play, as, you will, as we will see, you play legalities with this text. 
you discuss or you share with other people what you like and you conceal what you like. Parts of the parts you tell people about and parts you don't tell people about. This is 91. And ultimately, the instruction to the Prophet and Muslims is let them, let them, ذرهم في خوضهم يلعبون. It is like saying they are what they are. Don't learn from the, their ethics, from their way of life. But it is not your business to change them. وهذا كتاب أنزلناه مبارك مصدق للذي بين يديه ولتنذر أم القرى ومن حولها والذين يؤمنون بالآخرة يؤمنون به وهم على صلاتهم يحافظون Then the Quran will go back to that precisely ethical code that I was talking about. And it reminds the Muslims, reminds Muslims that this book is an affirmation of the same ethical message that was given to the Prophet Moses and given to earlier prophets. <coughs> the only thing I want to say about Litunzir Ummah Qura, Orientalists jumped on this expression, although right before, just a few verses earlier, the Quran says, Dhikra lil alameen, a message to humankind. They said, well, tundir ummah qura, see, to warn ummah qura means to warn Mecca. And what is, what is around Mecca? And they said, see, the, the the Prophet started out in Mecca not thinking of himself as a universal prophet. He thought of himself basically as a local messenger to his fellow Arabs in Mecca, and then later on changed his mind when he became victorious. And I, kept, I, mean, I found so many Muslim students, like, read this, and yeah, you know, but just open, then I thought, but, I remember a graduate student, I said, two verses before that, it said, Dhikra al-Alameen. And he said, it did? Really? How much effort does it take to f open a freaking Quran? I mean, astaghfirullah. To open a Quran, astaghfirullah, I didn't mean that. To open a Quran and just see. I mean, it is, why is it that we are so enraptured by everything that is said by a Western scholar, a Western authority. Okay. Then we'll trans, then the beginning of the discourse on the issue of law. And it starts out with a truly alarming warning. وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبًا أَوْ قَالَ أُوْحِيَ إِلَيَّ 
ولم يوحى إليه شيء ومن قال سأنزل مثل ما ما أنزل الله ولا ترى إذ الظالمون في غمرات الموت والملائكة باصتي أيديهم اخرجوا اخرجوا أنفسكم اليوم تجزون عذاب الهون بما كنتم تقولون على الله غير الحق وكنتم على عن آياته تستكبرون The warning is those who lie about what Allah says and those who claim to know what they don't know from Allah, to, including to say, I've received revelation. This includes any imam, any teacher, any scholar that pretends to know what they don't know. All the texts on ilm that warn, because the Prophet ﷺ comments about these verses by, say, by, by the numerous hadith about those who claim, who say this is halal and haram without knowledge. And this is what the, the Surah Al-An'am will then move on to. Or those who claim to know that this is God's law or that's not God's law. And unfortunately, that ethics, again, in the modern age, I, I've, how many imams do you encounter that seem to that imply to their congregation some semi-divine relationship? That is nothing but a lie. It is not based on anything. Um, but, you know, it has become fashionable among modern Muslims. Okay. Let's move Because then there is a long passage where Allah goes back to remind us that this is, that creation is meticulously calibrated by Allah, the maker of everything. Okay, until we get to verse 100, because that's when we go back to the discourse of Allah. So, what is the issue here? After the passage that reminds us that this creation has an owner, but in the same way that creation has an owner, morality itself has an owner, it is not up to us to say whether justice is something we can do without, or mercy is something we can do without, or salam is something that we can do without. Then, verse 100, it starts engaging systems of belief that Imagine that the 
the imagine that the powers of divinity can be compared to any corporal or non-corporal reality. Why? Because that system of belief leads the Meccans to legislate a whole range of laws that are quite curious. As we will see. But you know, um, I, I don't I don't want to jump there yet. I don't want to jump there yet because then we'll be skipping some important things. Okay. What? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala First, this is uh, 100, 101, and 100 true. This is 103. Some of the most remarkable things I've read about this passage of the Quran is Muslim discourses on the nature of knowledge, al-ma'rifah. If you know anything, but you fail to comprehend and manner the meaning of it, the import of it, then it is compounded ignorance. So when Halaj was asked about knowledge, he says, that real knowledge is to internalize, psychologically internalize the meaning of the thing. So if you believe or you read the words that jinn are not shurakat billah, jinn are not partners to Allah, and Allah doesn't have banin or banat, and Allah doesn't have daughters as malaika. And Allah is badi'a al-samawat wal-ard. Allah is the, the, the badi'a, the, 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 the creator of the beauty of the heavens and the earth. And, and that Allah, huwa rabbukum khaliqu kullu shay. That Allah is the creator of everything. And that Allah لا تدركه الأبصار وهو يدركه الأبصار وهو اللطيف الخبير. 
and that Allah sees all but is not seen but he is the Latif and Khabir the the uh, how do you how do you just let me one oh three So the study Quran uh, translates Latif al Khabir and he is the subtle, the aware. No. No. Let's see Muhammad Asad, 103. Um, he is alone, unfathomable, all aware. That's closer. Al Latif al Khabir. Khabir is clear, the all-knowing, but Al-Latif is the, 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 the one that cannot be fully comprehended by the intellect, but at the same time, the one who maintains existence through an act of grace. Lutful law is like the intervention of Allah's kindness in all affairs. So when you read all these words, but these words don't translate into imana, into a meaning. That transforms your hiss, your consciousness. Our forefathers, the people who created the Islamic intellectual tradition, saw in this a complete failure of knowledge that this is the definition of ignorance. Knowledge in data that doesn't translate into a meaning, that, and the meaning doesn't translate into a psychological engineering of a human being, is not knowledge. Now, I underscore this because People like Ibn Arabi, for instance, who says so many people talk, of, talk about Allah's mercy, but so few are transformed by Allah's mercy. Qadi Abdul Jabbar says something very close about Allah's justice. So many people say, yeah, justice. But to make justice your compass in, your li in life and that to understand that Allah is the Latif and the Khabir truly truly as the anchor of all is to turn the ethical lessons of Allah into a transformative reality.
Okay. نورس 104 قد جاءكم بصائر من ربكم فمن أبصر فلنفسه ومن عمي فعليها وما أنا عليكم بحفيظ This is that this is an in, a path of enlightenment from your Lord. Those who will follow the path of enlightenment, it's for their own sake. And this is 104. And those who don't, it's their own failure. And as to the Prophet, I don't control your path and I'm not responsible for that path. وأجان وكذلك نصرف الآيات وليقول درست ولنبينه لقوم يعلمون. So again, the Quran returns back to tell us this is how we demonstrate the lessons. وليقول درست. This is a, a fascinating expression. These ethical lessons were impossible. It's impossible for an illiterate, even illiterate Arab to have produced. So the Meccans themselves were not so interested in the ethical lessons. They were interested in the way that the, this man was causing slaves to defy them, causing the poor to defy them. They were interested in the social and economic challenges. But after the Hijra, which had not taken place yet when this was revealed, the people who were confounded by the messages in Surah like Hud and Yunus and Yusuf and Al-An'am, where the highly educated scholars that lived among the Jewish tribes of Medina. And they tried to figure out who taught Muhammad these lessons. This is not the way, this is not the way Arabs from Mecca speak or think, and they knew that. And so it is, it is a remarkable, again, telling, projecting what's going to happen in the future. Because this is precisely what, Jew, and they knew that if it was that Muhammad was reading the New Testament and the Old Testament, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't come out with these lessons. Because the narrative of the Old Testament is very different, and the narrative of the New Testament is very different. Yes, there are moral, ethical messages, but their narratives primarily concerned with history and the telling of a story about old prophets, old nations. But this way of building an ethical message 
was, and it's it's liyakulu darasta. It's it's sort of a a, a a fascinating challenge. It's like so so they can marvel as to how educated you. Okay. And again, that 106, 107, that again, look, look at how many times the Allah reminds the Prophet of a message that some Muslims quite insanely said became abrogated. That, اتبع ما أوحي إليك من ربك لا إله إلا هو وأعرض عن المشركين ولو شاء الله ما أشركوا وما جعلناك عليهم حفيظا وما أنت عليهم بوكيل This is 106 and 107 That you again have not been made given authority over them You are not expected to control them You are not expected to dominate them Can you imagine if, if you for a persecuted people, and you come and tell them, tell this person, this, well, you're not expected to control them. It sounded laughable to Methodists. It sounded like, what the heck are you talking about? Of course you don't control us. But, okay. وَلَا تَصُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَصُبُّ اللَّهِ this is one or eight. Many commentators read this to mean that don't go around as you are being persecuted don't go around calling non-believers names so that they don't start cursing God. But look, كَذَلِكَ زَيَّنَّا لِكُلِّ أُمَّةٍ عَمَلَهُمْ ثُمَّ إِلَى رَبِّهِمْ مَرْجِعُهُمْ This is 108. So, this is this is the way we've given each people the choice of their path. So, وَلَا تَصُبُّ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِنْ دُونِ It is not simply don't curse them out or don't call them names. But don't don't offend them. Don't, this is not what you're there for, is to cause offense so that you simply, it becomes an issue of you've offended me, so I've offended you back. Understand that although they are completely wrong and completely deviant, deviant this is Allah's choice. 
this is part of the ethical code. The path of a Muslim is not to cause offense and to understand that even if people are wrong, they have a right to be wrong. Okay, so of course you notice one eleven. This message again is repeated that that those who don't believe will not believe, and it is part of Allah's plan: belief and not belief. Okay. وَكَذَلِكَ This is now 112. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍّ عَدُوًا شَيَاطِينِ الْإِنْسِ وَالْجِنِّ يُوحِي بَعْضَهُمْ إِلَى بَعْضٍ ذُخْرِفَ الْقَوْلُ غُرُورًا وَلَوْ شَاءَ رَبُّكَ مَا فَعَلُوهُ فَذَرْهُمْ وَمَا يَفْتَرُونَ Let's pause at at 112 for a second because of its importance. So the translation first, let's... So thus, for every prophet, God has decreed that there are enemies, God describes them as shayateen, as demons. Demons among humans and jinn. And that they whisper to one another glittering half-truth. And the glittering half-truth result in delusions the nature of falsehood is maybe the the that the nature of falsehood not just to every prophet, but the everyone that will attempt to uphold God's ethical code and present it, is that human beings can be demons as well as jinn, because the shaitan is anything anchored in evil. But when human becomes committed to that, what they become addicted to delusions that have nothing to do with a moral code or an ethical code. But, And if God would have wished, they would not have done so. So understand that this path, the path that you, Muhammad, and your followers are on, it is natural that it will generate an evil 
untruthful opposition. This is why among the, the, the things that you read, there's a lot in the Islamic tradition commenting on, on this verse, but among the, the nicest or the most, but it's well represented by the following, which is in, in Ibn, Ibn Ajiba's tafsir, page 299. What he's saying is, It is natural that you become focused on the hostility of the enemy. And it's also natural that you become focused on the love of those you love. Both are natural. But if you become preoccupied by the hostility of your enemy, then what you lose is love. And what your enemy wins is what he wants from you. In other words, the way that these, these verses about the inevitable inevitability of demonic opposition whether from humans or jinn, is to understand that if you become focused on hating your enemy, it will twist your psychology and corrupt your moral code. وهو الذي أنزل إليكم الكتاب مفصلا والذين أتيناهم الكتاب يعلمون أنه منزل من ربك بالحق فلا تكونن من الممترين وتمت كلمة ربك صدقا وعدلا لا مبدل لا مبدل لكلماته هو السميع العليم This is 114 and 115 The most important point about 114 and 115 is the anchoring that it is truth and morality and ethics that Allah is the giver of moral law. So, when the, there is a hadith, the Prophet ﷺ is asked, Ya Rasulullah, what happens if we disagree after you're gone? And we find Nothing in the book that answers, resolves the disagreement, and we find nothing in 
your tradition that resolves this agreement. And the hadith, I think, is, is very interesting because the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, رُدُّوهُ إِلَى صُلْحَائِكُمْ وَجْعَلُوهُ شُورَ بَيْنَهُمْ وَلَا تَتَعَبْدَوْ رَأْيَهُمْ That ultimately create a social structure, and this is the way I understand it, in which those who are most those who are known for their piety and virtue. And sulha doesn't mean those who pray the most or fast the most, but those who are most virtuous, those who are most moral. There is a system in which there is shura by now, meaning an exchange of ideas a discourse. You can't have a discourse without having freedom. And ultimately, create a system in which their opinion becomes influential in your affairs. Notice, it didn't say make them your leaders, make them your rulers, but make, create a system in which you are able to hear their opinion and be able to be influenced by this opinion. This goes back to whether you are ultimately realize Allah as the source of what I've referred to as the natural law or the moral law in existence or not. And that, that's why then it's followed. And if you obey, this is 116. And if you obey, in other words, if you follow the whims, most of those on earth, you will never, you will lose sight of God as the anchor of that moral law. Okay. Um, there is a hadith that the Prophet again, it's often cited in the context of this verse when the Prophet is asked, what do you fear for your ummah after your God? And he said, that which is basically they lack certitude. It's like you have Iman, but if you translate what does that mean? Is that yes, you believe in God, but you lose sight of God as the source of what's right and what's wrong. Or you, it, it's not, it doesn't refer to, you know, am I going to go to Jannah or go to Hellfire? But it is your awareness of divinity in your life. Anyway, okay. So then it moves to laws. So it starts out by saying to eat Eat what 
Allah's name has been mentioned over. So, as a principle, you are not, the food you consume should not be consumed without the recognition that it is consumed by permission and by the blessings of Allah. Now, most, of course, in law books, they, they, tra they translate this to, well, if you eat meat. But I think it, re it refers to everything. If you consume food, don't forget to mention Allah's name. It lacks barakah otherwise. Okay. مَا لَكُمْ أَلَّا تَأْكُلُوا مِمَّا ذُكْرَ اسْمُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَقَدْ فَصَّلَ لَكُمْ مَا حَرَّمَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِلَّا مَا اضْطُرِرْتُمْ إِلَيْهِ So, what is haram and halal has been specified and including that moral law that our relationship to what we eat is by recognition that Allah's centrality to the, even to the process of consumption, especially if we slaughter anything, it must be slaughtered in Allah's name. And do not eat what Allah's name has not been mentioned over. This is 121 because it is fisk it is actual inequity it is morally wrong to do so that the arguments which there are reports that well the reports probably reliable that the Meccans would argue with Muslims what is the point of insisting that you only eat what Allah's name has been mentioned over. Isn't it true that all food is a blessing? But notice now the, the way that the Quran will start dealing with the issue of law itself. So haram and halal belongs to God. And debates that obfuscate the law in terms of halal and haram often can be, especially if when it's going to resort to the type of technicalities that Surah Al-An'am will talk about, is like demonic arguments, which is a very strong moral condemnation. Okay. And that image Is it those who tread upon earth with light 
shining from them are not, which is an image of, of, of the illumination of the guided, or what I refer to as the aura of the guided, is not like those who lack that guidance. But how do laws and societies become corrupted? وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا فِي كُلِّ قَرْيَةٍ أَكَابِرَ مُجْرِمِيهَا لِيَمْكُرُوا فِيهَا وَمَا يَمْكُرُونَ إِلَّا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ وَمَا يَشْعُرُونَ The corruption always starts with the akabir, with the elite, with the higher classes of society. And that's where the arguments that obfuscate the position of Allah's moral laws always starts. The, the, Ibn Ajiba says uh, about this verse something, إِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهَ بِقَوْمٍ خَيْرًا جَعْلَ الْخَيْرَ فِي أَكَابِرِهِمْ فَيَجْعَلْ أُمُرَاءَهُمْ عَضُولًا خُلَمَاءُ وَعُلَمَائِهِمْ زُهَادَ عَفَّاءُ وَأَغْنِيَائِهِمْ رُحَمَاءُ أَسْخِيَاءُ وَصُلْحَائِهِمْ قَنْعِينَ أَغْنِيَاءُ وَإِذَا أَرَادَ بِهِمْ شَرَّ جَعْلَ الشَّرَّ فِي كُبَرَائِهِمْ فَيَجْعَلْ أُمَرَاءَهُمْ فُجَّارَ يَحْكَمُونَ بِالْهَوَى وَعُلَمَائِهِمْ حُرَّاسَ جَامِعِينَ لِلدُّنْيَا وَأَغْنِيَائِهِمْ أَحَشَّاءُ قَاصِيَةُ قُلُوبَهُمْ وَصُلْحَائِهِمْ طَمَّعِينَ فِي النَّاسِ مُنْتَظِرِينَ لِمَا فِي أَيْدِيهِمْ That the picture of corruption includes ulama that are live for worldly gain, for temporal gain, which unfortunately describes so many of the scholars that exist today. But anyway, so corruption begins with, with the elite of society and it is not a coincidence that when Allah talks about those who are shayateen liyukhuna ila awliya'ayum liyujadilukum the process of false arguments that obfuscate and compromise the role of morality this is followed by a reference to the elite where corruption begins but Let's, uh, we can't, we, we can't skip 135, it's like it's like a feeling of liberation. 
that's juxtaposed to those who are not guided heaviness and constrainment in the heart. It's like as if they, and this is by the way, among those who write about the scientific miracles of the Quran, uh, you know, which I, I'm not into, but again, you can read about that. The idea of those who rise higher in elevation, oxygen thins out and you start breathing becomes harder. In Mecca, there was no mountain that that could occur. You, you could rise, you could climb all the mountains of Mecca, nothing will affect your breathing. So, I mean, that, that's just one of the things. But anyway, those who are on the moral path, it's a path in which you feel enlightenment and the path of going the raw in, in the, which the reason I'm, 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 I'm pausing at this is that those who make Islam translate the ethics of Islam into a feeling of vengeance or anger or constant what can I say? You know, the, the type that you go to a mosque and they jump on you uh, to start lecturing about what's right and wrong. Compare this to the image of what faith means in the heart. It's a feeling of liberation and enlightenment, enlightenment not constraint and restriction. لهم دار السلام عند ربهم وهو وليهم بما كانوا يعملون. The idea that Islam is Dar Salam among modern Muslims rarely underscored but try to understand philosophically what it means to tell people that if you are a Muslim, the moral attitude is a feeling of liberation in the heart. And Dar es Salaam doesn't mean just the abode in the hereafter, but the very abode that you create in this earth is an abode of Salaam. So what would constitute an abode of Salaam? Is it abode where you feel tyranny, where you feel injustice, where you feel insecurity, where you feel inequity and inequality? As the number of scholars that saw the obvious point that to say Dar al-Islam is Dar al-Salam, that the abode of Islam must, by definition, be the abode in which <clears throat> translates into these ethical moral principles where you feel safety, security, fairness. Even one of the things I remember that 
the abode of Islam, you exist without fear of tajassus, without fear of being spied on. Of course, they were saying this in the medieval age. Translate this to the modern age. Muslim countries, especially Muslim countries in the Middle East, spy on their citizens more than any other nation. I mean, you can't exist in the Emirates or Saudi or Egypt without being monitored up to date. It is a remarkable translation of ethics. Okay. After Maghrib, you know, it doesn't look, I, I'm trying, but I, it doesn't look like I'm going to finish Surat Al-Anam today. Should I take a third day with Surat Al-Anam? Yes. <laughs> okay. Take a third day with Surat Al-Anam? Okay, we'll pray Maghrib, then we'll, we'll go on for like half an hour or less, and then we'll stop. Okay? Okay, after praying Maghrib, I have an admission to make. Uh, because I wanted to finish tonight, I've skipped some stuff. <laughs> so, now I feel very guilty, my conscience is really bothering me that I skipped some important material. So in light of this, uh, we're going to stop tonight and Saturday we're going to do justice by the remaining of the surah because there, there is some important information that I actually... But my, my, but alhamdulillah, my conscience bothered me when we prayed and I... You know, it's not, yeah. Alhamdulillah for a, good, for a conscience, right? So, um, and alhamdulillah for that, that, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, you have to come close proceedings. It's not official unless Grace closes, clo officially closes the proceedings. He didn't want to say more because he knew I would bite his head off for cutting yeah, she was corners. Giving, she was giving me dirty looks, and that's why I just... His shrik and I are always all over the shift, not to, um, you know, not to skip anything and all of that. And, you know, subhanAllah, actually, maybe this is why, like, when we were praying, I was thinking about what I might say. You know, I, I, I just wanted to share, like... Um, one of the really beautiful things in our tradition is that, um, you know, it takes like a, a century to um, develop a scholar. And, um, you know, so when we talk about, like part of the reason why Sharif and I come down so hard on Sheikh about not skipping past things um, is that, you know, we, if he doesn't share it, we're not gonna cover this again. And, you know, it's not gonna be that anyone else, any other scholar, is going to be able to share this knowledge because this is a lifetime's work and it's not even just one lifetime but it's a century you know and more because you know how often do you come across scholars who are so obsessed with the tradition that they like literally read everything collect everything preserve everything you know and even the um you know i don't know if people know this but the way that he was trained you know studying under sheikhs and 
you know, just being raised in a particular ethic that just doesn't exist anymore. So if we lose this scholar and we lose this approach and we lose this, this you know, repository of wisdom and knowledge, it will take another thousand years if it happens because that would have to be recreated from... Another hundred years. No, you're just being humble. <laughs> because, you know, if you look at our library, why do we have a hundred thousand book library? It's because one intellect cared enough um, to preserve this knowledge um, and, you know, really was immersed in, in, in this beautiful ethic. And, um, you know, if anyone understands the history of how this scholar was trained, I mean, it, it literally does not exist anymore, you know, unless, you know, in an underground capacity that no one knows about. But again, we're, we're pulling from the, the, the youth of today, and we already understand the, the, the state of the youth today. So, I mean, of course God can produce miracles at any moment, but, you know, in terms of what, who we have before us now, this is the scholar that invested a lifetime and is sharing this knowledge with us, and if we skip over anything, we are not going to get it. It's lost. So, um, that's, so, alhamdulillah that you're, you're that you owned up to it, because, <laughs> um, you know, anyway, but alhamdulillah, so just to say that it, you should, you know, take your time, and, and you know, we are it's, ready to receive. It's fear of God and fear of my wife. <laughs> and I'm not sure which comes first, by the way. I work, I work for God. Honest. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, so anyway, but... Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah for this knowledge, alhamdulillah for taking an extra day so we don't lose anything that, that needs to be said. And, you know, inshallah, um, may we, we preserve and learn everything that God intends for us to learn um, through this very blessed scholar. Um, and clearly, there are no other scholars doing this. Um, this is the only... I know you don't like it when I talk about you and praise you and stuff like that, but people need to know that, you know, in the, in the tradition, in the Tafsir tradition, this is the first time that any scholar has taken a chapter-by-chapter chapter approach with the argument that each chapter has a specific, unique moral message. That's what's original, that's what's unique. And if we lose any of the, the building blocks that go into that, then, then I don't know, you know, we're not gonna get it back from any other place. So alhamdulillah. And um, we will see you, inshallah, Saturday. To Saturday. be continued, part and three. We will finish with it, inshallah, 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 Saturday. <laughs> okay. okay. Have a Salam wonderful alaykum. night. Salam alaikum.